dedicate this next song to all the people that spent a lot of time doing this on computers talking shit about us. And uh, to those of you who aren't faithful to us, you never understood us in the first place. To those of you who are blind and faithful to us, thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. This is the Mars Volta podcast. I am your host, Albert Kesser. Today, we are going to be reading from the sites of Jeremy Robert Johnson, who wrote The Mars Volta's Descent into Bedlam, a Rhapsody in Three Parts. I first came across this shortly after my army accident in 2007, um, which was around about when I discovered Wax Simulacra on the iTunes store. I remember hearing the 30-second sample of that song and being immediately intrigued. Uh, the artwork for Wax Simulacra immediately uh, enraptured me, and that was my first point of contact with the Mars Volta fully. My peripheral point of contact uh, was through um, the Mastodon album Blood Mountain, where Cedric did a voice. Um, it's actually very likely that I first encountered um, the Mars Volta in its entirety through Wax Simulacra, making that an extremely important record, uh, the Bedlam and Goliath to me personally, and uh, certainly a very powerful and important song for me for that reason too. Let us begin. I will read through and take pauses to discuss if there's anything that I would like to add a bit of color commentary or that I sort of detect some symbolism that's worth bringing up and um, sort of passing out and diving into. So let's go, folks. Um, I first read this a long time ago. Uh, I've probably, I think, definitely forgotten most of it, which is wonderful. Um, you have these things in your life where, uh, like, I don't know, rewatching a certain series of a um, TV show that uh, you end up coming back to it but with new eyes and you always pick up more things and I don't actually think I've fully read the whole thing fully um, which will make this a process and a, an experience of discovery which I'm sharing with you all who may not actually know what this document is uh, and the context behind it. So Jeremy uh, by his website in his bio he's a writer and uh, writing this um, uh, explanation and, and um, behind the scenes information about this record which is to me my favorite the mars volta record and um a very personal one for me because uh, i uh, had some as i mentioned very intense times back then with the army and this was a very cathartic and um you know an album about overcoming a curse was was very timely for me at the time when i felt uh, misunderstood and i felt after the fallout of the army accident that i couldn't really connect with other people and i felt like an outsider and um, there are a lot of themes in this album, as well as just being very almost esoterically um, a stream of consciousness in many ways where you can just sort of surrender the senses and immerse into it and really uh, develop your own subjective relationship with the certain lyrics and passages and, and so forth. Um, overall, there's a theme of, um, I suppose, a meta theme of the band themselves overcoming the struggle of creating this record and myself as someone who was... Uh, going through struggles at the time, seeing someone or a group of people, artists, who had overcome a struggle and come out with this beautiful work of art at the other end, it gave me hope. 
and it actually led me to um, uh, focus my creativity in that time and uh, definitely either directly or indirectly inspired me to um, uh, develop my patterns, which were sort of this avenue that I chose for myself and, and created and discovered for myself for pouring um yeah all kinds of i guess angst feelings of abandonment feelings of just feelings you know and that's what art really serves best for so had to sort of begin with a bit of context but folks let's dive in the mars volta's descent into bedlam a rhapsody in three parts the genesis of the mars volta's new album the bedlam and goliath is one of the weirdest stories in the history of modern music a tale of long-buried murder victims and their otherworldly influence, of strife and near collapse, of the long hard fight to push the record that did not want to be born out into the world. And I swear we'll get to all of that in a second. But right now, before we drag any new passengers on the Volta Express into the lunacy of the Bedlam and Goliath, we've got to bring them up to speed. And so I present a very brief history of the Mars Volta. Back at the turn of the century, guitarist slash producer Omar Rodriguez Lopez and lyricist slash vocalist Cedric Bixler Zavala decided to form a musical partnership called the Mars Volta. They grabbed a few other intrepid musicians and recorded the Tremulant EP, which was incredible and weird and proved these guys were trailblazing far from the path's tread by their prior band, At The Drive-In. Then they released Deloused in the Comitorium, an astonishing album that served as both an elegy for and celebration of their friend Julio Venegas, as told through the fictional character Serpent Taxed, whose life and death travails are chronicled via the songs. The album was huge in terms of exposure, influence and raw momentum. Next came Francis the Mute, an album with a central plot, based, sadly, on the loss of another friend, this time fellow musician and bandmate Jeremy Ward. An equally bizarre and powerful album. For this record and the remainder since, Omar has produced solo, dropping some of the pop sheen that Rick Rubin brought to the first album in favour of more experimental textures and structures. And structures. If Deloused was a dark album, this thing is obsidian, and also inspiring, and majestic. Most recently they released Amputecture, their first album with no central concept, aside from stretching the boundaries of their prior musical achievements. Omar worked as a director slash conductor slash visionary, writing all the music and providing motivation while Cedric stretched his vocals and lyrics around multi-tiered songs about things like modern witch burnings, cultural oppression, and madness. The soaring intensity of the single Viscera Eyes alone is worth the admission. The tours supporting each of these albums have proven that the Mars Volta is an endlessly ambitious group intent on turning a standard concert into something transformative that can best be described as an oral, Blitzkrieg. Saul Williams, no slouch when it comes to rocking a stage, once joked that he rushed through his opening sets just so he could watch the Volta sooner. Point being, if you don't have these albums, you need them. If you do have them, 
then you know exactly what I'm talking about and you're anticipating the Bedlam and Goliath more than any other record this year. And you know, as I do, that if the Volta comes to your town with a show, that you have to be there or a little bit of your soul dies. That's a secret, sorry, that's a science fact. Which brings us to the now, on the eve of the release of the Mars Volta's stunning new recording, which brings us to the story. Perhaps it's best to insert a prologue for this tale, stating that some, cynics, pragmatists, people who would like their life to be more boring, may instantly respond with rolled eyes and disbelief. And that's okay. But others are willing to acknowledge that most metaphysics may just be the elements of physics our brains can't quite comprehend yet, and that there is a great power in words and in belief. Quotes from two Volta compatriots offer a relevant lead-in. The thing you speak to can shape the world. Look at Biggie, ready to die. Dead. Word. Saul Williams, again. This is the sound of what you don't know killing you. This is the sound of what you don't believe, still true. This is the sound of what you don't want, still in you, LP. And so, all that being said, here is the story and various annotations. Omar was in a curio shop in Jerusalem when he found the soothsayer. It seemed to him an ideal gift for Cedric, this archaic Ouija-style talking board. So it was then and there in a city where the air swims with religious fervor, in a shop that might as well have carried monkey's paws and mogwais, that Omar changed the fate of the Mars Volta forever. Had he known at that moment that the board's history stretched far beyond its novelty appearance, that its very fibers were soaked through with something terribly other, that the coral death and desire of a multi-headed Goliath was waiting behind its gates, well, he might have left it at rest there on the dusty shelves. The upside of that choice, no bad mojo unleashed, erased the madness that followed, erased the bizarre connection to a love-slash-lust-slash-murder triangle that, thre that threatened to spill out into the present every time the band let its fingers drift over the board. The downside, no, no soothsayer means the Bedlam and Goliath never would have existed. And it turns out that this demented spiritual black hole of a muse has driven the Mars Volta to produce a crowning moment in their already stellar career. So if Omar hadn't given in to his curiosity and brought the soothsayer home to Cedric, then the band would probably have been a happier, healthier, less haunted. But you and I, lucky listener, we would have been robbed of one fucking amazing album. More on that in a moment. Back up to the last big tour. The Volta and the Red Hot Chili Peppers are tearing venues in half, retreating to their buses, rolling through the night. But instead of the normal rock god routines, the guys are sitting around Cedric's new Ouija board, which they've dubbed the Soothsayer. And they love it. It's the new post-show addiction. The Soothsayer offers them names. Goliath, Mr. Muggs, Patience Worth, Tourniquet Man. The soothsayer offers them a story. It's always about a man, a woman, and her mother. About the lust floating between them. About seduction and infidelity. And pain. And eventually murder. 
Entrails and absence and curses and oblivion. Exactly the kind of spooky shit you'd want from your Yuija. Now here comes the rub. The soothsayer starts asking the band what they have to offer. This connection that's set up runs both ways, and the invisible voices begin to speak of their appetites. They threaten oblivion and dissolution, or offer it as seduction. The voices merge as Goliath, a metaphysical quagmire, an unfed saint, whose hunger to return to the real world grows more urgent with each connection. There are proper ways to close this union, but the Mars Volta has never been anything if not adventurous. They stay in contact, even phrases, even taking phrases from the board and inserting them as song lyrics, but never offer themselves as surrogates, and so the starving Goliath extends its influence. Inexplicable equipment issues abound while on tour. Conflict with the existing drummer escalates and results in a change of guard. Ritual gives way to injury and Cedric is laid low by a randomly and severely gimped foot. A completely reliable engineer's mental composure cracks, pushing him from the project. The tracks he leaves behind are desperately tangled. Omar's music studio floods, threatening to send him right over the same precipice as the engineer. Long-term album delays hit and the people aren't sleeping well. And people aren't sleeping well. Nonsensical words and phrases the board had previously spoken begin to pop up in things like documentaries about maths suicide. The soothsayer keeps telling the same story, but the details are becoming more brutal. One day, the label on the board peels back, revealing pre-Aramaic lingo written across weird cone shapes. It's bad mojo writ large, and things are crumbling quickly. Worst of all, the board has shifted from pleas to demands, to threats. So they buried the fucking thing. There are many ways to close a spiritual connection. Wear white for a whole year. Surround yourself with salt. Close a board and ask someone else to open it, thus transferring the ownership. Break the board into seven pieces and sprinkle it with holy water. Or bury it. Omar wrapped the soothsayer in cloth and found a proper place for it in the soil. Cedric asked that he never be made aware of its location. And then their album found a new, more urgent purpose. The bedlam in Goliath is here to consecrate the grounds where the soothsayer lies in wait. It is metaphor. It's metaphor versus metaphysics. Its story will be told to you and I, lucky listener, and we are the ones reopening the board, taking on the ownership. Perhaps if Goliath is spread between us all, its hunger will dissipate, or as it threatened, it could become our epidemic. So there's the story up to today. But it's not over. Because this thing is about to enter the hearts and minds of countless listeners. My hope is that the album will do exactly as the Mars Volta have engineered it to do, and lift the unseen burden that hangs over them. When they first sent me the Bedlam and Goliath and asked me to write this, I was nervous. What if the music itself was somehow cursed, a sort of audio Macbeth? But after over 100 listens, I can tell you with confidence that I'd risk a little spiritual vengeance for this album. From the opening surge of Aberincula to the Brobdignian blast of Goliath, to the frenzy and near escape of conjugal burns, the Bedlam and Goliath is the sound of a band transformed.
The Volta have never been what any sane person would call restrained, but in the heat of this bedlam, in their teeth-bearing, cornered animal response to an invisible entropy, they've created a truly relentless musical juggernaut. The returning roster, Omar Rodriguez Lopez on guitar and production, Cedric Bixar Zavala on vocals and lyrics, Isaiah Aiki Owens on keys, Juan Alderete de la Pena, de la Peña on bass, on bass, Adrian Terrazas Gonzalez on horns, Marcel Rodriguez Lopez on, per on percussion, Paul Hino Hinojos on guitar and soundboard, Thomas Holy Fucking Shit This New Guy's Incredible Pridgen on drums, and Red Hot Chili Pepper slash regular Voltum album contributor, John Frusciante, rounding out the guitar armada, have crafted a record that manages to contain the echoes of their considerable prior work and merge them with their uncompromising desire to carve out new territory in the musical landscape. Wax Simulacra carries with it the energy of D. Laust's This Apparatus Must Be Unearthed and elevates the tone with frantic looped vocals and a swirling mix of horns and drum rolls. The mind-melting freak-out crescendos of tracks like Francis the Mute's Cassandra Gemini or Ampitecture's Viscera Eyes have always given the Volta's albums and shows an air of transcendence. And there are moments on new tracks like Goliath and Cavaletas and Ouroboros that guarantee escalating listener paroxysms, if not Scanner's style exploding heads. The most relaxed new tracks like Iena and Tourniquet Man manage to encapsulate the strange lamentation of other Volta slow burners while adding an eerie sense of menace. The entire Volta crew is pushing themselves further than ever before. And to anyone concerned about the arrival of a new drummer, rest at ease. The Bedlam and Goliath unveils Mr. Pridgen as a drum-pummeling berserker, mainlining cheetah blood and snorting dusted mastodon bones, proving masterful with the elaborate and the explosive, and, the, and often melding both at the same time. It's worth noting, amidst all of this rhapsodic praise, how Omar and a crew of dedicated musicians have managed to breathe thrumming life into what was almost a stillborn album. The audio that the first engineer, who, on an up note, is now on the mend and feeling much better, had left behind, was close to unworkably snarled. In his absence, it became a scramble to rebuild what the band knew they had been creating in the studio. Robert Carranza kicked in heavy on the engineering, sinking himself into the whole project with an added focus on the drum sonics. Lars Stalfors and Isaiah Abelin were also called in, and along with Omar they dodged daylight for two long stretches and slaved to rework each track. Sean Michael Sullivan and Claudius Mitten Dorfer did their best as editors to keep the band from having to start all over again. The ever-reliable Volta mixer, Rich Costi, tried to keep things positive and helped Omar battle what he called Goliath's quantum entanglement, which even Rich saw evidenced by things like randomly disappearing drum tracks. The depth of that entanglement becomes apparent when you realize that Omar, always at the center of these struggles, almost gave up on this record. 
the same Omar Rodriguez Lopez that moved to Amsterdam and cut four solo albums while also working on Ampitecture and a soundtrack for the Jorge Hernandez film El Buffalo de la Noche. The same guy that's probably working on a DVD, his own film and 10 new albums right now. But at certain points during work on Bedlam, his nearly incandescent creative force was on the verge of being snuffed out. And he was sure Goliath was behind the chaos. After his studio flooded, Omar even banned all mention of the Ouija board, for fear that simply acknowledging its existence might bring down some fatal blow. Despite the disallowance, he remained haunted. He'd wake to fits of late-night inspiration only to find that there was a power blackout, but only in his loft, or that the parts he'd crafted in the midnight hour would later vaporize. Production work began Production work became so nightmarish and Sisvian that he'd occasionally check on the soothsayer's burial site to see if it had been exhumed and reactivated. Knowing about the immense challenges faced in the creation of the Bedlam and Goliath only elevates my appreciation for Omar's production. With this record, he has laid out a blueprint for anyone else seeking to combine the complex with the primeval and make it all hit you where it counts. This is an album that's eclectic, this is an album that's electric for both the 3 a.m. headphone listener and the guy doing 90 on the interstate with the windows down. This is an album with an immense level of control and experimentation on display. For every section with intricately panning at for every section with intricately panning gut-punching drums and shimmering horn sounds and scorching guitars, there's another where you can sense a mischievous musical mind at play. For example, the fuzzed out bass tones at the end of Iena, or the real inserted recordings from Jerusalem, or the sound of a live jack switching between demo and final versions on Asclepios. As a filmic analogue, picture Kubrick or Fincher working in tandem with Bunuel or Jodorowsky. Actually, similar analogues could be extended to the whole of the album itself. The Volta have acknowledged the immense influence of surrealism and film on their work. In relation just to Jodorowsky, the Bedlam and Goliath manages to evoke the languid madness of Fando Ilis, the infidelity and murder and worship of San Sangre, of Santa Sangre, the broad spectrum religious imagery of Holy Mountain, the sheer guts on the table awe of El Topo. Throw in the identity confusion and headfuckery of Lynch's strangest films, Werner Herzog's sense of obsession, a few dollops of Jonestown, the life and death of People's Temple, and pinches of The Exorcist, and Don't Look Now, and you're starting to get the right idea. On the lyrical front, you should be warned, this is an unsettling piece of work. You're welcome to take Cedric's vocals at surface level. He sounds incredible, his range broader than ever, his energy and emotion undeniable. Or you can begin to translate. Cedric Bixler-Zavala, like fellow musical mavericks Bjork and Ghostface Killer, used primarily English words but speaks his own lyrical language. If you examine the meaning behind his shrapnel burst imagery, his obsessions with the grotesque and the profoundly sacred, you begin to realize he's created a complex associative tapestry that's designed with, with spiderweb precision. And before you know it, you're trapped. The more you re read the story he's laid out, an intricate metafictional narrative reminiscent of Danielowski's House of Leaves, involving both the transgressions of the past and the desire of the Goliath parasite to infest the Ouija-using host, the more you research his illusions, 
and the history of the spirit board, the more uncanny connections you are bound to make. You start to recognize a tie between certain vocal effects and messages from the board. You wonder if focusing on this story too much might invite Goliath into your world. Soon you're jumping at shadows, shopping for salt and all-white outfits, surrounding yourself with graphs and counting words and letters and looking for codes, creating your own primordial cymatics, using the album, feeling phantom tendrils in your bones. You begin to hope that all the positive elements Cedric covertly slid into the songs, a legion of religious references including snippets of Santeria-derived prayers, classic fables, the hidden name of a regal actress he holds in high regard, an underlying reverence for creation slash menstruation, vague hints of redemption. Little note here from me, Albert speaking here, the regal actress he holds in high regard is Helen Mirren, and her birth name is Iena. Really are helping to balance out, maybe even negate the darkness that has infested the album. You're bound to have questions. What exactly transpired in the tragic triangle? Who was really in control and who were the victims? Was anyone innocent? How did they die and what happened to the bodies? How did they come to rest within the soothsayer? If they return to our world, what will they do? Those answers and more are in there, fused at every level to songs of equal complexity and gravity. And the closer you listen, the further you voyage into the Bedlam and Goliath, the more disquieting and compelling the Volta's brilliant audio celluloid epic becomes. This album is the sound of a band playing magnificently for its life. And it is a recording of such strange power that I believe the Goliath that haunts them will be forever struck down. Word. Jeremy Robert Johnson, October 27th, 2007, Portland, Oregon. The Zion Division, a second stage burial. I... I am the Simeon Martyr's bullet-borne deliverance. 2. Ideomotor effect. Forced cryptomnesia. Your shroud returns stale whispers. Ropes tighten at each limb. 3. He half-woke to a wild leopard. To blood-pregnant air, the smell of his courted collapse. Laurel twigs crossed her hidden tools. 4. The holy glyph floats close. Its grey light angles suffuse the bones now dust. Flesh now jelly. Every cell shakes loose its viral code. Supernus pacta sunt servanda. 5. Its hands swept through in the crooked mandible. The chemical lobotomy swung blind. The monoxide possessions. All of it unended territory. 6. Sandover light shone symbiotic until you saw it swallow shift. Your attractions granted final grace. 7. I will not follow your collapsing oblivion. JRJ, October 28th, 2007, Portland, Oregon. First print copy, internment. Interment. Bonus material. The first item is a t-shirt design which quotes the Latin sentence from the fixed-form Symmetrina titled The Zayan Division. I don't know if the actual shirt was ever produced, but it's pretty cool. The Latin says something close to the superior pact will prevail. The second item, well, by the way, from me, Albert, I believe that that in... A similar way in the vein of, you know, True Detective Season 1, like the, the light is winning, as dark as things get, there's a sense that as, you know, um, sentiences, um, entities kind of encased in this sort of temporary vessel, which is the flesh vessel, 
uh, it is light is definitionally inescapable from us because we generate it at all times. So there may be some wider, deeper truths beyond our bodies, but as far as we ourselves, the entity in this body we each live in, light is the norm and light is the default. And then as for whether it's the default in the wider and deeper outer darkness, that's for us to discover at the end, you know, and which will also be the beginning for all of us. The second item is one of many pages of notes from my first listen to the album, trying to simultaneously listen to the music and decode the lyrics and meaning within the context of the sounds. What the hell does flute sob mean? Here we have a very... Um, and that's the end essentially of the article, but we have here um, a handwritten document. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, there's points. But still distant, first hints of infinite seem less. This is something that I'm going to actually submit to the subreddit for them to translate. So there you have it, folks. There in essentially 30 minutes is this compelling, beautiful uh, recounting of the experience of the Bedlam of Goliath, which is an outsider's perspective, as you mentioned at the end, you know, Jeremy. There's much that isn't known, and there's much that I believe is um, secrets and aspects that uh, Omar and Cedric may have created an accord with themselves, with each other, with Goliath, perhaps all three, that those wouldn't be divulged because putting those into the world would, would summon Goliath. Uh, for myself, I completely um, hold such stories as this as not only important and uh, as examples of um, how much of an interesting and never fully quite knowable connection exists between this and other worlds, other understandings. It's, I would say, almost my core story of that. Uh, we have, uh, you know, Dan, Dan um, Aykroyd, for example, he speaks about the different worlds and the different uh, aspects of reality that we just only have a limited understanding of. Uh, those obviously go out into, you know, pop culturified versions like Ghostbusters and stuff like that and uh, Conjuring and horror movies and stuff but um, one sec but for me when I read something like that it is a it's a wonderful thing that I think Guillermo del Toro would have something to say about this too in regards to another Spanish language production which is um, Pan's Labyrinth which is the question at the end of is it all happening in her head or is it all happening in someone in someone's head instead of it playing out and as i just referred about maybe five six minutes ago about the flesh vessel and and how there's even a line i guess in harry potter it's you know again i just pull things I'm, i don't discriminate between sources if it gets the meaning across then it does which is you know just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real very you know i have big issues with that author jk but that is a very powerful line and uh, oh, as it happens, uh, we're recording um, episode 290 of the main show tomorrow, The Matrix, for the 18th anniversary of Reloaded, and just rewatched The Matrix yesterday, and Morpheus's uh, quotes about reality, and what is real. If it's just electrical signals, then, you know, that's what reality is, ultimately. It's 
our reaction to our surroundings and there's no guarantee that what's around us is actually objectively true and as i mentioned we are forever subjectively bound uh, and this is a core thing of the quantum myth the lifelong media storytelling endeavor of mine which is at the very outset of these stories that it's important to understand that we are limited creatures uh, we aren't like the goliaths of the outer darkness of uh, the other realms we don't have infinite patience we don't have infinite anything we're where um infinite consciousnesses are temporarily inhabiting temporary bodies you know uh, mortal fallible uh you know yeah vessels with expiration dates you know and it doesn't surprise me that when cedric dove into lyrics for this one and themes for this one uh that um with such things as murder and infidelity and such things like that that um that that would have been maybe a bungee cord out of that darkness is and uh it's very fortunate actually that the band has just like mastodon created this bungee cord out of that darkness and a, and a, and a channeling place for it a place to appease it because if we talk about psychic disturbances um i i do believe in psychic wounds and psychic um i i believe there are individuals out there who are so uh aggressive and so um uh, I would say, yeah, misanthropic, that they create like scars in, in the air around them and in the energy around them, and that sort of spills into how people behave around them. And so this, for me, is what bedlam is. Is um, uh, it, it should not be a point of contention or debate of whether or not Goliath was real, because he was. He was an entity that visited and then thankfully left the vault of, thanks to their concerted efforts of returning to positivity, returning to creativity. And Goliath is an important metaphor here for darknesses that we each ourselves are on a path to conquering or, or who we have yet to encounter, who we will, thanks to records like Goliath and, and knowledge that uh, people who have chosen to push through and integrate that darkness and become one with it and then, and then um, dissipate it and distribute it all throughout their body so that it just becomes of them. Um, and yet... As mentioned by Jeremy at the beginning, that's who they are now. And there was definitely a darkness that entered them and it's still there. It's like um, negative experiences and like depression, like they never fully leave. That They're always there in some form. Um, and then it is just about that relationship. So I think not to be, you know, I don't want to be sound frightening or anything, but the idea of Goliath having been appeased, not from having been banished, but having had two people who maybe he wasn't, prepared for them being so emotionally intelligent so resourceful that he said well usually i just terrify and move on or i just consume and dispose but i found in both of you vessels for me to i guess have a constant source of i guess psychic energy to, to feed off of and uh that's maybe why he's now dormant within them and so that this bedlam that uh you know was created for the record and it is of them i mean this is part of their story and so Goliath is in that record every time you listen, and he's all everywhere. So I, I believe that it was a very accurate statement that Jeremy made about the Jerusalem curio shop that Omar visited, that it did change the fate of the band. Um, after Bedlam, Octahedron came out, and it felt like, some people called it their acoustic album, I think that the band even referred to it as such. And... 
I I saw it as a almost like a debriefing, like a, an exhalation after um, coming out of the other side of Bedlam. And as nocturnicate, I mean, even in that uh, nomenclature, you have some the sense of something at night uh, of you know being rocked to sleep, like that rock knocked nocturnicate. It has the feeling phonetically and thematically of something where. You know, we began with this tremulence, this trembling, this awakening, uh, this delouse, this flushing, this emergence, and then into Francis, which was this um, expression, this statement, and then conflict, which was bedlam, and then octahedron, res- uh, uh, you know, reprieve, and then oct- nocturnicate, uh, you know, peace. And and with architecture in there was just, I guess you could call it day to day, like there was no concept as as mentioned by Jeremy. Um, as I mentioned on the Tool podcast recently, music uh, of the highest levels of integrity, artists with that highest level of integrity are entities. They they, they don't really uh, they. That's how the music that itself like transcends over time and will for many many decades and hundreds of years from now. This music will be listened to, and the spirit of when it was captured will be preserved. Um, the messages preserved uh, because artists, when they are in that that level of a creative space of that level of honesty and sacrifice, self-sacrifice to a point, enter a space of self-authenticity that actually completely checks itself out of the time space. Like it just it orbits outside of time space, and it and it it earns its place as this very like worthwhile and and uh, timeless kind of repository for these expressions creatively you know these songs this art by jeff jordan i would love to hear jeff actually at some point we can speak with him just about his experience of creating the artwork um for bedlam as we'll broaden that out into talking about uh, his experience creating artwork for the band in general uh, i mentioned again on um the tool podcast about how alex gray and allison gray and when they met you know cross paths with tools like there was a, there was a a combination that happened of that feels to this day like with Mastodon for me I know they've they've used other illustrators since but Paul Romano will always always be Mastodon for me and um, Jeff Jordan will always be the Mars Volta because they found one another and I would be very curious to hear um, how Jeff Jordan as far away as I presume he was from the studio flooding and all of the events of um, of Bedlam to, to hear his take and whether Goliath reached him in some way like across the ethosphere, you know so folks I uh, have really enjoyed diving into this record with you it's going to be a bit of a shorter one compared to my chat with C.D. Clark, but uh, to give you a bit of a preview of um, oh by the way, we are nowhere near finished speaking and I don't think we ever will be finished speaking about this album um as I believe the Volta will discover themselves, you know, Omar and Cedric over time, uh, as I'm sure they know on, on some level, because as I mentioned, with the timelessness that they accessed and made this stuff from, it's like if timelessness were a material, uh, Mars Volta created their work from this material. Um, they, coming out of that sort of um, buzzing electricity of, you know, buzzing motive atoms, whatever you'd call it, uh, let's say the unstable molten core, of the band and then the earth settled and the the verdant you know life forms came to life like at the drive-in is that molten fiery thing and then the vault of this verdant multicolored multi-hued uh paradise of of just endless variations of themes and colors and stories um 
that is timeless because uh, that is a cycle there that I just described of you know something coming out of this chaotic space and then stabilizing and then um, you know the final part is to yeah re re remerge with the earth and then the tumult comes again and the cycle begins anew and so whether or not we may potentially see a new Volta record this body of material will just be endlessly discussable by by my by myself um as in me speaking about it unto myself with my own reflections and then exchanging ideas of some of the people i'll introduce now in terms of the next episode um and then future generations too absolutely you know that'll be so fascinating and remember as i mentioned art of this caliber of this level of authenticity of honesty takes on a life of its own gains details of its own and same thing with soprano same thing with uh you know the godfather whatever these where there was just that much poured in um and i i i, I call that the reservoir of eternity uh i say this about like my fiance you know when she's patient to a certain degree which like doesn't seem human i say like oh wow you're loving like the cosmos now like the universe now like that's how you love and and this is how cedric and omar create like you they love they create like gods uh and that's not like some fanboyish thing it's like they they have a sense of when they're creating something they are fully present with it they fully throw themselves their love their blood sweat and tears everything um to the point of pushing through what would have definitely f like laid low and deterred lesser musicians with bedlam you know as that true gauntlet um and so i say i say this about that kind of way of living way of reacting way of creating is that it's you are actually tapping into the vein of the divine cosmos by doing that because that's that uh, field of, of material out there where things like the most worthwhile people were created from that like my fiance i say this omar cedric cd clark johan sheher the whole clouds hill gang they're made of that same material um that that is and it's not it's not common it's it's only extremely passionate people can um push through into into and it's never something done on principle it's just as a side effect of who they've chosen to be and you might think oh albert this is very like you know hoity-toity grandiose language but it, it has to be said in some fashion and i'm, I'm very pleased to to put all of myself into what i do which is quantum myth and and these uh these chronicles with the the bands and such with with the mars Volta podcast in this case um where i can absolutely anyone anyone i hope to go through the entire uh clouds hill team to to have them join uh, the show and and present their um their experiences with la realidad de los sueños and and then every figure i mentioned in jeremy's write-up uh, to have them the the bedlam folks like this is the beginning it's not definitely not the end with bedlam and and that's just one record folk we 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 have we have many more so and onwards forth shall i i'll say that too. put that into the universe come whatever may folks um episode four we are looking at my good friend uh kindred spirit uh lyle likes music uh he has a different name uh on instagram which I will pull up soon. We also have um, Compulsive Percussion will be joining us as well um, for the episode, the fourth episode, which um, is going to be a celebration of 
the 18th anniversary of D-Laos. And again, every year, we're going to have certain anniversaries for certain albums, and those will be conversations yet another year passing, launching gig stories, launching all such uh, really worthwhile exchanges of ideas with from the context of Volta and into Volta-adjacent topics, which I also love Jeremy's uh, write-up for that reason. He's a very kindred writer from that point of view because he did cite Jodorowsky. Uh, he did cite... Um, uh, these influences, which I highly suggest. Everything you heard, please rewind the podcast and look at the PDF in the description. Look at each and every one of uh, the influences he talked about there and the references and the, the vibes that he got from listening to it. 100 times he said he listened to it. My goodness. Uh, I think right after this, no joke, as this one is is um, uploading, I will certainly definitely be... Um, uh, listening to i uh, just from back from start to fucking finish i think i'm gonna go for a run actually fuck it listen to bedlam and goliath absolutely so as i was uh, quasi vamping there i was just bringing up my wonderful co-host here we go so rock music media is what he calls himself but it is lie like uh, lie likes music uh an incredible uh documentarian a commentary uh maker on um uh, the music very uh, just music and it, it, I would say there's a there's a consistency there. It's not just all all kinds. Um, he he's an eclectic soul. You can definitely tell. Um, but there's a I would just say it's it's in the family. Like we're talking Black Sabbath. We're talking Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he'll have gone into uh, Bowie. He'll have gone into Muse. Uh, he, he's a as you can actually see some of his art that he's made there. So he's a multidisciplinary artist, a true kindred spirit, and uh, we really do appreciate. Um, he's made some very kind comments um, in the comments on the Instagram and also on the YouTube. So shout out to you, my friend. I look forward to speaking with you on the show. Um, his compatriot who joined him for some recent uh, the Mars Volta video content um, compulsive percussion uh, an amazing amazing drummer and so over there compulsive underscore percussion uh, one on one drum lessons for beginner and intermediate musicians so uh, there you go online drum lessons right there from this exceptional artist right there you can see I've seen some of his videos or I've definitely seen him at it then we have Shayla, last but not least, our honoured guest, Shayla, who chimed in um, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, to put it exactly, it was the 28th of April, and she said, hey, I could share a story or two about the Mars Volta. I became enamoured with them when I was about 15 years old in 2005. I must have seen them 20 times, perhaps double that if you count all of the side projects and solo shows. I used to bake vegan treats for them, sleep outside venues, sneak into venues, sneak backstage, and on and on. They were my everything for over 10 years, still very dear to me. I had a fun diving down memory lane and relating to other fans. So as I mentioned there, so not only onto the um, uh, show, but definitely an honored guest for sure. So Shayla, looking forward to speaking with you and to Compulsive. Uh, I'm sure you have a name. <laughs> Let's see if I can bring it up. Uh, I don't think it comes up. That's cool. We'll find out soon enough. But um, and then obviously we have uh, Lilac's music as well. So my three co-hosts for this um, upcoming episode and i look forward to um seeing what you all uh you know drew from their commentary about this amazing record de last where to begin with that record really um one thing i'll be doing is i'll have the lyrics in front of me we'll dive in and i'd like to get riffs from them on uh, the different uh you know very again 
you know, lyrically, this isn't smoke blowing to Cedric, but lyrically he, he is a gift in terms of endlessly revisible, revisitable, endlessly reinterpretable lyrics um, over the whole entirety of the, the Volta's, you know, lifespan, which again, we shall see. We shall obviously eternally see. But um, folks, it has been wonderful uh, going through this uh, chronicle with you of this record, of this band. And I look forward to, um, yeah, going forward with it as we, yeah, make our way towards different anniversaries and such. Um, and certainly, yeah, may, as I mentioned in the description, like uh, the Volta forever, you know what I mean? Always. That's, that's what this band is. They're tapped into infinity and uh, that's just in the essence of who they are. And that's very solace bringing because it means we'll have them forever and onwards forth, no matter what. All right, folks, until next time. Bye for now.